Hi, my name is Joe, and I want to tell you about my podcast that I host called Still Unknown, an unsolved true crime podcast. Every other Monday, I talk about a different unsolved murder, disappearance, or unexplained death in hopes that telling these stories will someday bring out the answers that these cases are desperately seeking. You can listen to Still Unknown wherever you are listening to this podcast here. And who knows, you may even be able to reveal the final pieces to help solve a case. So subscribe now to Still Unknown to hear a new case every other Monday, and let's try to solve some mysteries together. Hey guys, this is Tori from Cruel and Unusual, the podcast. My co-host Katie and I drop brand new episodes every single Thursday about all things true crime, horror, and conspiracies. Each week, we pick a different theme like disappearances, unsolved cases, or killer couples, and we tell you all about the crimes that were committed. On every other Tuesday, we take your stories that you write into us and read them for our mini-episodes. Come hang out with us and let us know that the Forensic Miles podcast sent you. Welcome to Forensic Miles. I'm Miles. What's up, guys? It's Sean. And today we are going to be covering the Forensic Files episode, Skirting the Evidence, which is the story of the murder of Sharon Sanderson. So... Sounds like a good one. Yeah, let's just get right into it. In Memphis, Tennessee, on the night of April 19th, 1996, Robert Sanderson was running late from work to meet his wife. Instead of waiting for him to arrive, Shannon Sanderson decided to head to a casino alone. Shannon was known to go to casinos a lot. In fact, her husband mentioned that she went more than he would like. At around 5 a.m., Shannon pulled into her ex-in-law's home to pick up her children before heading home for the night. The pickup did not go smoothly, however. Upon her arrival, a two-door maroon Chevrolet pulled up to the house. During the trial, which happened months later, jurors testified that they heard a scream and a thud, and they saw someone pushing something into the back seat of the car. This was the last time anyone saw Shannon alive. At the time of her abduction, Shannon was only 25 years old. She had three children from her previous marriage, Amber, Michael Jr., and Chance Holland, and they all lived together with her current husband, Robert Sanderson, in Memphis, Tennessee. But we're getting a little ahead of ourselves. What happened to Shannon the night before she was abducted? On the night of April 18th, 1996, Shannon and her husband, Robert, were meant to go celebrate his birthday at Sam's Hotel or Samstown Hotel and Gambling Hall in Tunica County, Mississippi. It was about an hour away from Memphis, but obviously things didn't turn out that way. An argument ensued, which I assume was the result of Robert running late from work. And instead of waiting for him and going together, Shannon decided to head to Tunica County on her own. 
Shannon dropped off her three children at their grandparents' house. So this was her ex-in-law's home and headed to the casino around 6.30 p.m. Shannon had had a blackjack winning streak that night, and around 3 a.m., she cashed in her chips for $5,000 cash. Not a bad night. Yeah. Well, it turned out to be a bad night. Not a bad day. Gambling spree. Yeah. To be cautious, Shannon was escorted to her car by an employee of the Samstown Hotel and Gambling Hall, and she started her drive back to Memphis. When she arrived at the home of her in-laws, it was around 5.45 a.m., A neighbor had seen Shannon drive down the road at approximately 4.30 a.m. He remembered seeing a dark car following her. He identified it later as a a Chevrolet Beretta. He said that he saw the car parked in the driveway of the grandparents' home. According to her father-in-law, he heard a commotion outside, and when he looked out the window, he saw Shannon bent over next to her car screaming, Don't, don't. He assumed she was on the phone with her husband, but by the time he got outside, she was gone. Neighbors also woke up due to the screams, and they saw a young person wearing a red baseball cap crouching near Shannon's car. She heard a th- This neighbor heard a thud, and when she looked out a different window in her home, she saw a man behind the wheel of a car, which was pulling up next to the one at the home. She saw him reach back behind him and push something into the back of the car and then speed away. A bus driver near Eudoria, Mississippi, who had driven the same route for 10 years, said that he saw Maroon Beretta pulling out of the driveway of a house he said had been in all of his years of driving, so 10 or more years, he had never seen anybody come in or out of that house. On that same morning in Clarksdale, Mississippi, at around 9.30 a.m., a man returns home driving up his driveway in his wife's maroon Beretta. His wife thinks he's acting nervous, looking out the window, that kind of stuff. Her husband has an excuse, though. He said that he won a lot of money gambling earlier that night, and he either, he gave her a $100 bill. Sharon, his wife, doesn't believe her husband, Gerald Powers. She thinks he's been having an affair. She noticed that he was wearing a yellow shirt blue jeans, a red baseball cap, a denim jacket, and white tennis shoes, the exact same outfit he had been wearing the night before. She noticed that he had cleaned and vacuumed her car. None of this felt right to her. So Sharon decided to confront her husband and accuse him of having an affair. But what he told her was much, much worse. Gerald came clean and shared every horrific detail with his wife. Gerald told her that he had kidnapped robbed, and killed a woman. He confessed that he had watched this woman play blackjack from the second floor balcony of the casino. He followed her home in his wife's car, and as she pulled up into the home that driveway, he kidnapped her. He then drove to an abandoned home in Mississippi, stopping only to move her from the front seat of the car into the trunk of the car. Gerald shot her once in the right side of her head. He then stole her jewelry and the $5,000 she had won from the casino. He got rid of the gun by throwing it into the river. At this point, he knew that there had been witnesses. He said that he had seen the school bus driver notice him, as well as one of the neighbors from the home that he abducted Shannon. But he wasn't really concerned about it at all. Gerald started to make plans for an alibi and decided to go chat with one of his neighbors. He asked her that if anyone were to talk to her, she say that, He was with her that night. 
The neighbor agreed, laughing and saying something along the lines of, as long as you didn't kill anyone. Oh my gosh. The next night, while watching the news, Sharon and Gerald saw the report of Shannon's abduction with a description of the suspect, who was obviously Gerald. They had the red hat, they had the white tennis shoes, you know, people had seen what he was wearing. Gerald immediately sprung into action, jumping into his wife's car, the maroon Beretta, and going into hiding. He informed his wife that she could tell anybody that asked that he had left for uh, Mercfreesboro, Tennessee, and that they had money buried in the backyard if she needed it. Sharon was no dummy, though. The minute her husband left, she called 911 and informed them that she thought her husband might be involved. However, she didn't tell them that he had confessed to her murder. At this point, you know, they're looking for a missing person. They're not looking for a murdered victim. Body. But, you know, I mean, I realized that she was going through this horrific situation. And I give her kudos for at least calling the police. But I think it really would have obviously helped for them to know that she was a murder victim at this point. I agree. Gerald returned a week later to collect some money and write an alibi note saying he left his wife because he was dissatisfied with the marriage. He also told Sharon where he had hidden Sharon's jewels. Sorry, Shannon's jewels. 20 days later, on May 9th, 1996, Shannon was found. She had been placed in the storage room in the back of an abandoned home. Her body was badly decomposed at this point, but they were able to identify her based on her clothing, which matched what she was last seen in. They had recordings of of her from the casino. casino. Shannon had been shot in the head, but not before she had been brutally beaten. One of her front teeth had been knocked out, another was chipped, and she had a fractured jaw. So she really went through a horrific death. Jeez. On May 22nd, Gerald attempted to swerve a checkpoint and was stopped by an immigration and naturalization service agent. Gerald tried to pull a knife on the agent, but was subdued and brought into custody. Upon his arrest, his vehicle was handed over to the FBI. When the check, uh, when they checked the plates, they noticed that they matched Sharon Powers, and suddenly they got curious. This was a maroon Beretta. They knew that this was the car that they were looking for. They did a thorough investigation of the car, and they found something. Real evidence connecting Gerald to the murder of Shannon. They found a black wool fiber that matched Shannon's clothing. The FBI started interviewing Sharon, and finally she told them the truth about her husband. She told them about the confession, and she led them to where he had hidden Shannon's jewelry. They searched the river, too. However, they were never able to find the gun or Shannon's purse. During the trial, video evidence was brought forward by the prosecution that had footage of a person wearing white shoes standing at the balcony overlooking the blackjack table that Shannon had been sitting at. They also had footage of this same person following Shannon out of the casino only 30 seconds after she left the building. The prosecution also presented past convictions that Gerald had, and honestly, this next part is just awful to think about that he slipped through the cracks this many times. They have a violent past. He sure did. In 1979, in Tennessee, a woman came forward saying that Gerald had followed her home, and as she was getting out of her car, he jumped in and put a knife to her throat. After a struggle, um, 
you know, he hit her in the head with a crescent wrench. He ended up pleading guilty to aggravated assault. This first known victim um, did survive the assault. In 1980, also in Tennessee, a woman came forward saying that she had given Gerald a ride when he pulled a knife on her and broke her nose with the handle. This woman was honestly a badass. She drove straight to the county jail where she honked her horn and Gerald was brought into custody. Yeah, she was. Yeah. (laughs) He later pleaded guilty for aggravated assault. In 1984, Gerald entered a woman's home, beat her with an iron skillet, stole her jewelry, a credit card, and a gun. He hid the gun in the jewelry, which sounds very familiar, um, but was later apprehended and pleaded guilty to robbery and aggravated assault. So, obviously, this was his M.O. He was known to attack women. Attack women, robbery. Steal their jewelry, steal their money. Assault. So, it's really upsetting to think that, you know, if he had possibly had stayed in prison, Shannon would be alive today. Yeah. She got lucky at the wrong time. Yeah. At the wrong night, I guess. Gerald wasn't about to sit by and, you know, let this happen. His attorneys attempted to prove reasonable doubt. They claimed that three other people had motive to kill Shannon that night. Calling all true crime fans, murderinos, crime junkies, and wine coven members. Have you listened to Murder in the Rain yet? Murder in the Rain is a true crime podcast based in the Pacific Northwest, focused on the local cases that make us the notorious home of bizarre crimes and serial killers. I'm your host, Alicia Holland. And I'm your host, Emily Rowney. I'm Josh. I forgot. I forgot. I was. In each episode, we will cover a case to bring you all the details of the crime. We often feature interviews with people close to the cases, including authors, victims, doctors, and detectives. Most content is dark and not suitable for young or sensitive listeners, but we do try to lighten the mood by providing a blooper reel at the end of every single episode. Trust me, you'll love it. Check us out today, and if you like us, don't forget to subscribe, follow us on social media, and leave us a review. Our website, MurderInTheRain.com, has additional content, podcast feeds, discount codes to some of our sponsors, and an interactive map with locations for each episode. So Gerald and his attorneys tried to claim that three other people had motive to kill Shannon that night. Brian Maurer, Brett Muskamp, and her husband, Robert Sanderson. They tried to enter evidence stating that Brian Maurer and Shannon had been having an affair um, for the past two months, which was actually true. And that two days before her kidnapping, Shannon had gone to break it off with Brian, which was also true. She told them that they could still be friends, blah, blah, you know, the usual breaking off a relationship thing. It's not you, it's me. Exactly. Gerald insinuated that Brian was angry at Shannon for breaking things off um, and he killed her. However, in reality, Brian said that he wasn't angry at all. In fact, he was relieved because he himself had already started seeing other women. So this evidence was deemed irrelevant and was, you know, eventually excluded from the trial. Brett Muskamp at one point had written a letter to the Sandersons in an attempt to stop them from dating. Obviously, it didn't work. The Sandersons ended up 
getting married, of course. And then they brought charges against him to stay away from Shannon. However, you know, this evidence was also kind of deemed irrelevant and was also excluded from the trial. Now we come to Robert Sanderson. Gerald claimed that because of an agreement that the Sandersons had made upon their marriage, that Robert had motive to kill Sharon. Basically, this document said that if they were to divorce, Robert would have to pay for an apartment for Shannon for up to six months. The thing was, is that neither Shannon nor her husband, Robert, were considering a divorce. So there was really no motive or evidence um, that this could possibly be true. So it was also deemed irrelevant. Gerald was sentenced to death for the murder of Shannon, plus 30 years for the aggravated assault charge against Shannon. Gerald had some issues with the way his trial had gone, and he attempted to say that, you know, because of these issues with the case, including the testimony of the victims of his prior, you know, charges, right. um, he should get a new trial. But those are all, like, character witnesses, so, like plays a big part in his pattern. Right. But he was saying also the fact that all of those three th men that I had said before, none of that evidence was entered to, you know, claim reasonable, to claim reasonable doubt. Now, here comes the confusing part. And I remind you that I am by no means a professional. So this document that I was reading was extremely confusing. But this is the way that I understand it. This was like a, an official court document, which the link will be on our blog. So the court did not err when choosing to not mention the evidence I stated before. However, there is a possibility of error in the evidence that I'm about to tell you. A witness came forward stating that a man she had seen on the night of Shannon's abduction was Robert Sanderson. She identified him as Robert San Sanderson. And she isn't the only one that claims this. An employee of the casino stated that he had seen Shannon on the night of her disappearance. She had been attempting to hide in a restricted area of the casino. When he went to talk to her, she said that she was having trouble with a man who was sitting with her at the blackjack table. And that man was her husband. Three days later, Robert went to the casino and introduced himself to the employee by name, asked him what Shannon had said to him, and then attempted to assure him that he was not there that the night of her disappearance. Ultimately, if they had entered this evidence, the testimony would have basically said that Robert could have been present at this casino, which might have led the jury to a different conclusion. Gerald is currently sitting on death row. Um, you know, there was there were petitions in Tennessee to ban the death penalty a few years ago, so executions were halted. However, now the executions are kind of back up. Um, but the last execution was in 2018, and he's not really on any list for upcoming executions. So I'm not really sure what his future holds, um, but I don't know. Whatever it is, he deserved it, and it was a long time coming, apparently. Yeah, it's a really awful case um, because they had so many chances to stop him, and he finally just took it too far. But we hope you liked our 12th episode, and we are so excited for you guys to come back for episode 13. Please remember to give us five stars on Apple Podcasts, and... Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Forensic Miles, Miles with a Y. All right. Thanks, guys.
Bye. See you guys next time. I did just want to mention one thing about the podcast Murder in the Rain. I had the opportunity to meet two of the hosts of that show, Josh and Alicia, when I was in New York City for the Forensic Files 2 premiere. And I just want to say they are absolutely amazing. They gave me so or such great advice, and I really love their show. Um, so I really hope that you all go and check it out.